But today I want to open up in Matthew 28 because a question that I want to address is what happened right after Easter? And kind of continue that story. Um, next week, my sister is going to be speaking. Um, Kate and I and the, and the kids are going to go to South Carolina uh, for the week. Um, Ellie's birthday will be on Wednesday. So someone offered us a, a place and to come and just kind of be and celebrate with the family as we celebrate our daughter's birthday. So we're excited for that. But my sister is going to be talking about the great banquet, which will be awesome. But today I want to talk about the great commission and what happened right after Easter. And what can what does that mean for us? Mean for us to live our life. And so we have Jesus who has been resurrected. And in Matthew chapter 28, verse 11, we'll start there. And this is right after, you know, uh, Jesus had been resurrected. He kind of revealed himself to the, uh, uh, the ladies and to the guards. And Matthew has this interesting um, story, some details about the guards that none of the other gospels have. So verse 11, while the women were on their way... Some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priest everything that had happened. So before, what happened was the guards were in, in front of the tomb. So after Jesus had died on the cross, the uh, Pharisees, these religious leaders, came up to Pontius Pilate, who was the governor, and said, Hey, we heard rumors that Jesus was going to raise on the third day. We're afraid that his disciples are going to come and steal him to kind of carry out this lie. So could we have a guard? Now, we had two different kind of guards. You had temple guards and you had Roman guards. And we believe that these are Roman guards because Pilate says you have your guards. So these guards were to stand in front of the tomb to make sure no one stole the body. And if a guard didn't do what they were supposed to do, if they failed guarding... If they failed whatever they were called to do, the punishment was death. And we see this in Acts when Paul and Silas are in jail in Philippi and they miraculously get their chains removed and the guard is going to kill himself. And they say, no, 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 don't do that. And so this is the punishment for failure. So here we have these guards. They went to the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. Now, when the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And the story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. So. The scripture says that these guards shook in fear when they saw the angel and when they saw the tomb removed. We don't know if they actually saw Jesus come out. We don't know. But we know that they saw something pretty dramatic. I believe maybe they went to the religious leaders for a couple reasons. One, when something spiritual happens in your life, where do you go? You go to spiritual people. Maybe, maybe they went and be like, can you believe it? <laughs> this is what happened. We saw angels. The tomb was rolled away. Thinking maybe they would be like, oh my goodness, this is great news. So maybe that's why. I'm just speculating here. But maybe that could have been one of the reasons why something religious happened. They go to religious people. The second thing is they had failed what they were called to do. They were supposed to guard the tomb. 
So if they went to Pilate, if they went to Rome, their punishment would be to, for death. So they go to the religious leaders who kind of had this huddle. They devised a plan and they give them money. But more importantly, they give them protection. They protect them. And they say, yes, they take the money and they take the protection. So let's keep going in verse 16. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So here we have these guards and we have these disciples. The first question I want to ask you is, would you trust in the resurrection or do you put your hope in the worldly protection? Take the money. This sounds good. I'm going to take the money and the protection. They believed that Jesus was risen, in my opinion. They believed something big happened, something miraculous happened, but yet they chose to take the money. I'm reading, a, I just finished a book by Bob Goff, who's a, a writer and a speaker, and he says, we need to stop working towards things that work and start working towards things that last. Life lasts eternally. We talked last week about defeating life, how we try to defeat death, right? Mind uploading that it's our mission to defeat death. But one thing that we also try to do is we try to preserve physical life. And I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but we would do anything to preserve life. For example, my two-year-old is like an amazing scooterer. Drew, like, it's, it's hilarious. When he was one and a half, he puts his passy in, and he just like bombs around and scooters like no other like kid I've ever seen scooter. I'm hoping that will translate to athletics, but that's yet to be seen. So where there's our driveway is not too long, but it's long enough, and at the end of the driveway is a pretty busy road. And so we always play this game, right? Like, he kind of knows not to go into the road, but sometimes he will go far enough where I have to, like, all right, if I chase him, he thinks we're playing a game, and he will run away from me. Or if I go slowly, he kind of looks at me, and, and then I can get to him. So, so my game is this. I need to be close enough where I can rescue him from the road, even if he sprints off. So this one time, I was preoccupied with doing something else, and he was really close to the road. And here I am, super crippled with my arm, and I start sprinting like with my one arm flailing, and he starts laughing, and I'm in so much pain, and I don't, it doesn't matter because I would do anything to save my son. And I run, and I grab him by the hood, and I pull him back, because a couple of days before, Blake was on the other side, and he forgot to look both ways. And he said, Blake, dinner. And he came from the neighbor's house, and he just sprinted across the road. And my heart stopped. And I'm thinking, I would do anything to protect the lives of my kids. When Ellie would spend a week 
in the hospital treatment. We would get a bill, kid you not, fortunately we had insurance, but for one week of the treatment that she got, it was $120,000. And we did this 14 times, this specific treatment. Millions of dollars went to trying to preserve life. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just trying to think of a perspective that we would do anything. If you're a parent here or anything, you would do anything to save your child's life. You would do anything. But how come we don't translate that to a spiritual life? How come we kind of view our spiritual lives of second to our physical lives and we really don't have that whole urgency that we would have for our physical life? And I think some people think maybe, maybe we need more evidence, more miracles. If God were to show himself to me, I would probably have a little bit more urgency to show God to other people. But what we see here in the story of the guards, that it does take more than a miracle. They saw the miracle, but yet they chose the things of the world. Go back to Luke 16, where Jesus gives this parable. So you have this rich man and this poor man named Lazarus. Not the same Lazarus that died and rose again a couple uh, weeks before Jesus came into Jerusalem. A different Lazarus. They go to, uh, they die. Lazarus goes to heaven. Um, um, the rich man goes to hell. And there's this chasm. And there's this kind of this analogy here. And Father Abraham is like the gatekeeper of heaven. And so the rich man is looking up at Lazarus and saying, hey, would you, would you help me? And so this is what happens in verse 30 of Luke 16. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead, this is what the rich man says, if someone from the dead goes to them, to meaning his family, he wants his family to know the afterlife is real, eternity is for real. If someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent, meaning they will change their ways and they'll change their views and believe in Jesus. And he said to him, this is what Abraham said, if they do not listen to Moses... And the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone raises from the dead. I love this because it says we have enough now to put our trust in Jesus. Many of you say, well, if God were to do this, if God were to do that, all I need is something big. What if, what if something small, maybe like a little like glimpse of an angel, maybe a little voice and what Jesus is saying, one, if I give you that, that still won't do it. It's not a matter of what you see. It's more of what you believe. Will you have faith? You don't need any more. The guards saw everything, but yet refused. I look back at scripture and you see the Israelites. You wonder, why didn't the Egyptians put their trust in God? The Egyptians saw these plagues. The Egyptians saw the power of God, but yet they chose to ignore it. What about the Assyrians who tried to attack Hezekiah and miraculously, you know, God defeats them? Nope, they still refuse to follow God. What about the Israelites who were God's people, who had literal manna, food fall from the sky, and they saw the, the ocean part, and they saw all these miracles, water come from a rock, and yet they still would refuse to go back. They teetered back and forth. And so my hope is that you know that we have enough information to follow Jesus. 
we don't need more. For those of you who have chosen resurrection, what does that look like? I want to dive into the Great Commission because this is, I think, where we are called and we are sent. I don't believe that this was just specifically for these disciples, but I think we're all called to be disciples. So I think these are the marching orders. About a month ago, Kate and I watched the new James Bond movie, No Time to Die. I'm not, I'm not going to give it away, but we watched it. First of all, the whole time we watched it, it was in bright pink. And I told my friend after we watched it, I'm like, dude, like, the video was all pink. It was like really artsy. Like, it was weird. He's like, that was meant for the specific TV. Like, what are you doing watching that? You should watch the real one, right? So we thought we were watching this like ultra artsy film, but it was really just a really bad like filter on it. But there's a part in it where James Bond, they, he kind of disappears in the beginning and he comes back and they didn't know if he was alive or dead. And he goes to visit his guy Q and Q is the gadget guy. He's the guy who's a tech guy. And he knocks on his door and he comes in and Q says, so guess you're alive. And Bond re repeats, yes, and I have a mission for you. It was a little nonchalant, but I think it reminds me a little bit of the Great Commission. You know, here are all these disciples in a room, and Jesus enters, and I think they're more enthusiastic than he was, and like, you're alive, I can't believe it, you're alive, this changes everything. And Jesus responds, and I have a mission for you. It's almost as the same as this is just the beginning. This is not the end. This is the beginning. And then the mission is, I want you to go and I want you to make disciples of all nations. I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I want you to teach them everything I've commanded you. I was on, um, I was looking on the computer. I think it was YouTube. And I saw this clip. There was this missionary that was going to Ukraine. He was going to U Europe to help all the Ukrainian refugees, they're going over in Poland. And I don't know if you guys saw it, but he breaks out his guitar at mid-flight, and he starts singing praise and worship. He starts singing, How Great Is Our God. Half the plane is, like, singing and super happy, and the other half is, like, so upset. <laughs> and then you read the comments, right? And some comments are like, Why are people upset? They're praising God. And I'm thinking... They were almost forced to listen to worship. You know, maybe they were just listening and watching a movie and some dude with a guitar starts singing and they're just annoyed. Maybe they're trying to sleep. And it was almost as if this guy was like saying, hey, literally they could not escape from the plane. And he's going up and down the aisle with his guitar, you know. And, and a lot of people are like, this is great. And I look at him like, you are forcing people to listen to Jesus, who don't want to listen to Jesus. And I don't know if that is the way to go. I think there's a process here that he lays out. One, make disciples of all nations. What a disciple is, someone who is saying, I want to follow Jesus. A disciple is someone that you can't force to follow Jesus. They have to want. So we want to represent a Jesus where people are drawn to that want to follow. The second is to baptize them, to say, hey, I'm now going to make a decision. Now, my following Jesus, I want to follow Jesus, I want to be a disciple. Now, I'm going to physically display that by the representation of going into water and coming out. And then the third is to teach, 
to teach people what it means to follow Jesus. We use scripture and we use groups and friendships and relationships to help each other learn. I'm still learning. You're still learning. But I think so many times we get it backwards. We first like, no, I'm going to teach you everything. And people are like, well, I don't want to learn it. No, you're going to sit down. You're going to listen. And then we say, now you get baptized and then you become a disciple. But God says, first, go to all the nations and make disciples. I think it's really, really cool that he says all the nations. I want to jump back into time real quick and talk about this all nations of how cool this statement really is. The Tower of Babel. If you guys grew up in Sunday school, you probably heard about the Tower of Babel. Genesis 11, right after the flood, Noah, you know, parks his ark. He comes out with all the zebras and giraffes. And, and all the people kind of stay in one area. And they say, let's make a name for ourselves and build a tower that reaches to the heavens. And they start building this huge tower. And God looks down and he's like, what are you guys doing? Because they said, we want to be the center of the universe. And so God comes down and he scatters them and he does this by changing all their languages and they're speaking different languages and they get scattered. And, and then we have Babylon. So finally, all these people come back to God's people, Israel, get their own country. They have Israel, they have kings, King David, King Solomon. And that's, guess what happens? They start to refuse to follow God. They want to be the center again. And you know what God does? All right, I'm going to scatter you. And then the Babylonians come. Babylon, which was the Tower of Babel, comes. And they get spread out all over again. The Tower of Babel, Babylonians. And now you have Jesus saying, go out to all nations. And you say, well, how are we going to do this? How are we going to reach all these people, different cultures, different languages? And Jesus says, I'm going to give you the power to do so. And then we have Pentecost. Pentecost is in about 30 days, 33 days from now, where Jesus, after he was resurrected, about 30, 40 days was on this world, and then 10 days later, Pentecost, and all the disciples are in a room, and then all of a sudden, a mighty wind came through, like balls of fire came on their head. This is where we get fireside from, and they all start speaking different languages. And now you can see, oh, God is going to equip me to reach those who don't know him. Now, I'm not saying that we all need to learn different languages, but I am saying that God will give you the power to reach those he has called you to reach. The theologian N.T. Wright said he was on the subway once. And him and his buddy were talking. All of a sudden, his friend started breaking out in tongues and speaking. And N.T. Wright says, I've never heard anything of this. And this random person sitting on the subway came up and said, how does he know my native language? And he got, gave him the ability to speak a small language that only a few thousand people could speak. Actually, right now, there are still 1,671 languages that need to be translated into the Bible. They think in less than a decade, every language will have a copy of Scripture in their own language. We are literally going to all nations. So the question is, 
Do you want to make a name for yourself or do you want to make a name for Jesus? Ann Landers, which is an advice columnist in Chicago, writes this. There are two kinds of people in this world. Those who walk into a room and say, here I am. And those who walk in a room and say, there you are. Then she says, be the kind of person that says, there you are. Make the time to take your busy schedule down a notch and notice who is around you and standing in front of you. I think so many times we live our lives wanting to be the center of our universe. Where God is saying, I am calling you to go out. I'm calling you to speak to all nations. I believe that we live in an area where you are purposely placed to show Jesus to whoever is in your circle. Acts 1.8, this is what Jesus says right before he ascends to heaven. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. There's a reason why Jesus chose very low-level people on the social scale to enact his mission. He used fishermen and tax collectors and zealots. He didn't say, hey, you need to have this degree. You need to be of this education. You need to be someone who was brought up in the church. No, I'm going to take people, unlikely people, to reach other unlikely people. And that is awesome news that he could use you. He could give you power to reach others. But I, I want to get real for a second because I want to be honest. That it is really hard. As much as there's a power for you, there's also a power against. Because I think, honestly, like growing up in the church, it's like, go, share Jesus. And when you get out into the real world, it's like, this is really hard. I remember when I was in college, our class that, what, that I had with about 20 of us, there was a big Billy Graham crusade in Atlanta, Georgia. This was about 2001, 2002. And, and the Billy Graham crusade, this was televised. And on the bottom of the screen, there was a telephone number. And people who would hear this message and want to give their life over to Jesus would call this telephone number. And then these phone calls would go to these phone centers all around the country. Our class was manning one of these phone centers. So here I am, a 21, 20-year-old kid, asked to pick up the phone of these people who are calling in to give their life for Jesus. One, I felt like I was very unqualified. So I'm sitting there, and the phone rings, and I get my first call, and there's this lady from Louisiana. And you could see her, she had like bunch of kids in the background. It sounded like she was like a teacher, and she was just bawling, and her, you could hear her kids crying, and she's like, I listened to Billy's message. It impacted me. I want to give my life over to Jesus, and I'm like, amen, and like, this is awesome, and so I start talking to her about it. I'm going to lead her to a church, because we had like a whole like a way of doing it, to plug them into a church, to lead them to Jesus, all these things, and as soon as the middle of this prayer about uh, you know, bidding my life over to Jesus, all the phones went dead. Not only in our center, but every center around the country, phones just stopped. And I was thinking, the enemy is attacking. And you could say, oh, look how many people are getting to know Jesus. But as much as there's traction, there's also a traction against. And it can be hard. 
It can be hard. And I just want to let you know it can be hard, but it matters. You matter. That God has placed you in people's life to carry out the mission that he has called you to do. You matter. Life is not easy, but it is worth it. When I was in Jamaica, I was leading a bunch of high school students to build a school there. And I remember we went to a cricket match. It was in the middle of the island, very impoverished, and there's a cricket match. I know nothing about cricket. And as we were sitting there, there was this little girl that we got to know through some of the kids' stuff we were doing. She's sitting all by herself, super dirty, and just like sitting in, in this like grassy area. And so I'm like, you know, I'm going to go to her, and I'm just going to sit with her. I'm just going to sit with her. Someone, this little girl, I don't think had a lot of people in her life, and I think she felt like, you know, I just want to love her the best I can. So I sit with her. We start kind of like doing these like fun like hand games. And I think she played with my watch and all those things. And at the end of the cricket match, I get up and I, you know, and I leave. I get home. And I kid you not, I counted 42 ticks all over my body in places that I can't even tell you. 42. And the reason why I say this is because we believe, God, if I'm going to go out and do things, if I'm going to go out and I'm going to enter the muck with people, then you are going to protect me. And it's going to be all like sunshine and rainbows. And I'm here to say that it will be hard, but it is worth it. Actually, when I was in Jamaica, I was working with the leaders there. And these leaders were on fire for Jesus. And as I'm talking to them, I'm saying, well, what do you do for fun? And so these guys are like, well, we just sleep around with a lot of girls. And I'm like, huh. So when I, so I started talking to them. I'm like, hey, you guys, you know, this is blah, blah, blah. This is what the Bible says. And, and, and they were so in tune. And so a year later, I get a phone call from some same organization and said, hey, we need you to come back to Jamaica. I'm like, why? Like, you know, because these guys who you spoke with, they've been impacted and they want to learn more. We need someone to keep speaking truth to them. Could you come back? And I remember thinking, why aren't I this bold here in America? Anytime I go to a different country or whatnot, I feel I have this boldness about preaching the gospel. And I don't know what it is. But then when I'm here and I have people come up to me and say, hey, tell me about Jesus, I'll tell them. But my boldness is a little bit more, more of a hesitation than it is a boldness of bravery because I'm like, well, maybe they aren't going to look at me the same. Maybe they're going to think that I'm crazy. Maybe it's going to be too hard, you know. And, I start, and I'm just going to be honest with you. Like, I'm working on this in my heart as well. How can I be more bold for Jesus? How can I believe that life is more important than my life. What I do for my kids, running with one arm to save them from the road, why aren't I living like that for people's spiritual life? Have you ever thought about that? This is, this is my conviction. And so I started thinking about the people you know, in my life. I'm like, God, who have you placed in my life to make disciples, to baptize, to teach them. And well, God, would you give me power? 
It may not be different language, but God's power manifests in so many ways that we cannot even comprehend. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verses 14. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one who they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. This is what good news is. Good news is news. Shout it. Live it. Proclaim it. We have been on a mission to make disciples. I want to just kind of break down this journey of Jesus that I can make it simpler. That I believe that everyone should be making the next step in their faith. So as I go through these three steps, ask yourself, where are you on the step and how can you make the next step? So I think first is there are many people who are admirers of Jesus. People who say Jesus was a good guy, his teachings are, are nice, but I'm not yet ready to follow him. I think maybe these guards were admirers of Jesus. I believe that he rose from the dead, but I don't want to follow him. I would rather live in the world and just from a distance admire Jesus. I think many people live in this world. The second is people who are disciples of Jesus. Maybe this is a, I'm going to change how I live. This is making Jesus the center of my life, but not necessarily my whole life. I'm still learning. Maybe you're starting to read the Bible. Maybe you're praying a little bit. Maybe you're changing certain lifestyles that you have going on. You start changing how you live. Maybe you get involved in a church. I think this is a disciple. I'm starting to learn what it means to follow Jesus. But here, here's where the sweet sauce is. This is what I love. A disciple maker is one who wants to make Jesus the center of other people's life. And they do this by sharing and serving, by giving, giving time, giving financially. I don't see the books of who gives financially, but when someone says, hey, so-and-so is starting to give, my heart leaps not for budget stuff, but because I'm thinking this person is saying, I want to be a disciple maker. I'm willing to say that it's not about taking the money and the protection because I don't need the protection of having a safeguard around my finances. You know, I'm going to trust the Lord. This is what makes me so thrilled when I, when I hear stories of people becoming disciple makers. It's amazing. Kay and I were just talking about this the other day, about people in our life. You know, some of our own students. I look at Connor, who I've known for 15 years, a student, and people now who are disciple makers. I'll promise you, it gives me joy to know that someone that I was a part of their discipleship made another disciple. And when I learn about that disciple, to say, hey, I don't know you, but I know this person, my heart just leaps. That is the most amazing. It's like, you know... That God could use someone like me to use someone like them to make them a disciple. I just, God, thank you for giving me this gift. Have you ever experienced that? It's just amazing. And, and Kate and I were reflecting, you know, the last 20 years have been hard. And I got to be honest with you, almost every day you got to wake up and you got to say, this is worth it. This is worth it. I don't see it now, but it's worth it. 
We were talking about our, our uh, Kate when she was just starting out and worked when she was like 23 years old. Kate was a really good you know, financial steward, and her job said, hey, we're going to match your retirement 100%. So she's like, okay. So she would give like not a lot, but a couple thousand a year, which when you're in your early 20s, that's like a ton of money. And it was a sacrifice. But now with the compound interest, that money has totally multiplied. And we think, that is so amazing that you were able to do that at a young age. And at the time, it hurt. It was hard, but it matters. I'm going to ask Christine and Connor to come up here as we close. And I want to read Matthew 6, verse 19 through 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Going back to Bob Goff's quote, stop working towards things that work. Money works, success works, but start working towards things that last. Could we take the words of Jesus and truly live like that? Could we say, I'm not going to give in to protection. I'm not going to take the money. I'm not going to be just an admirer of Jesus. I'm not just going to be a disciple, but I want to be a disciple maker. Think about when you're face to face with Jesus. We're all going to be face to face with the Lord Almighty. And how is that conversation going to go? Could you say, I did everything in my power to serve you and love you. And I trusted you with my life. Even though it cost 42 ticks, I pulled off the ticks. It's fine. When you look at your life, I, Billy Graham, at the end of his life, when he was in his 90s, he said, what's your one regret? And he said, I regret not spending enough time with the Lord. And so I just want to live the way that Jesus has called us to live. Go. I'm going to give you power. It's going to be hard, but it's going to be worth it. And I'm going to send you, and I put people in your life. Right now, we live in one of the most unspiritual, Jesus-believing areas in the country. And what I find is that people are thirsty to know who Jesus is. So my conviction is, God, make me not be afraid. Make me not be, I don't want to pick up the guitar and lock people in a room and say, sit down, you're going to listen to this worship. No, but I want people to know that there's a God who loves them more than they can understand. And so wherever you are, admirer of Jesus, disciple, disciple maker, what would it cause you? What do you need to do to make that next step? And my challenge is to do it. If you're an admirer, become a disciple. And if you're a disciple, become a disciple maker. Lord, we pray, God, that you would convict us, Jesus, to be sent that you, you, God, you value us as your instruments. <laughs> Lord, that when you left this earth, when you ascended this earth, you sent your people on mission to carry out what you were doing and continue to do through us. So, Lord, would you just say yes? Lord, that is all we're asking is just to say yes and just to say, God, yes, send me. 
Use me. I'm just going to say I'm available. I think so many of us say, God, give me ability and then I will be available. But God says, no, I want you to be available and then I will give you ability. So the first step is to say, yes, I am willing, God, to be sent out to go to reach those and to do it with grace, truth, but also to do it with compassion. That we're not making people feel bad about themselves, but we're saying, God, you need to know that there is someone who loves you unconditionally. And then once you know him, that you will want to change your life for him. And so like the Tower of Babel, they say, let's make a name for ourselves. My hope is that people will say, no, let's make a name for him. So Lord, we pray that Fireside would be on the front lines of making disciples. It's in your name.